cliffcentral.com. All right, we are live. It is Thursday morning. It is time for the Burning Platform. We're going to get into all the stories this week that have caught everybody's attention, all the things that are going on in the news. I don't know if you heard that promo about Dr. Mark's show, uh, Vaginal Orgasms, for me. There's some interesting stuff going on there, huh? Mm? 40%, huh? 40% of women cannot achieve an or a vaginal orgasm. Is that what she said? That's what she said. That's- Quite a lot of information for 7 o'clock in the morning. Do you think that there is a correlation, <laughs> not necessarily causation, between 40% un- youth unemployment and 40% non-vaginal orgasm? <laughs> These are the, the big questions. I, These are the big I, questions. This this information is just too much. I think there might be a correlation with another piece of information I read that something like sixty percent of all men ejaculate within two minutes. That may be the reason. Two minutes may not be enough time for people. To... <laughs> it may not be enough. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Wow. Sorry, guys. There's there's, oh. there's a serious conversation to be had here. And there is. But it's not going to happen with Pumi and I, I'm afraid. Not in the burning platform either. So we've got a lot to talk about this morning in the, um, in the news. We, Pumi and I have kind of discussed some of the, the, the issues around student protests and tertiary education. But we've got so much more to get into. Um, Ivo wants to talk a little bit about the National uh, Council of Provinces, which we never really pay any attention to. But they are our second chamber of parliament. I mean, they're... They're an important part of the South African political landscape. There are, there are people who have been sitting in the National Council of Province, Provinces that we're paying for. We take Parliament very seriously, but we only think about the National Assembly. We don't think about the National Co- uh, Council of Provinces. And they are our upper house, supposedly, so we've got to talk about them a little bit today. We never do. And also, the move against objectivity in journalism According to Ivo, Ivo always talks about all kinds of interesting things. One of the things that's a big bugbear for him is environmental stuff. So we may have a chance to get into that too. But Ivo, it's always good to see you. Thank you for joining us this morning. How are you doing? Good morning. I am excellent. Cheerful as a spring morning. I'm very, very happy to hear that. We need some cheer. Uh, for me and I were just, just bemoaning a whole bunch of shit in the first hour, so we need some cheer. And the other person oh, who's joining... I'm, so, I'm sorry, that's the, that's the end of the cheer that I have available. <laughs> All right, well, we'll have to try and make some, or we'll manufacture cheer. Um, and here is Canton Pele, who is also joining us this morning. Of course, Canton knows the burning platform like the back of his hand. He's pretty much been a part of it from the very get-go. And Canton always has quite a lot to say. And Canton, I know you have plenty to say about the president's new cabinet. Now, look at him beaming with joy. Well, just you know, with joy. Did, you, did you get you the know, cabinet that you've always dreamed of, Canton? Guys, you might remember the last time around we said that a cabinet reshuffle is not going to make an iota of difference to what we're trying to do. So at that level, <laughs> I don't really care. Look, frankly, we've still got... Uh, the usual suspects in place. Becky Kerle is still there. Um, uh, Ibrahim Patel is uh, is still there. We've got uh, Angie Motseka is still there. Uh, Bladen mm-hmm. Zimande is uh, is still there. Uh, yep. In other words, the the most dysfunctional of the most dysfunctional have been retained in exactly the positions and, that they belong to. 
and can I ask you all, Gotsasana um, Dlamini Zuma, who's been in cabinet since the Mandela era, she has always been there. Um, it's amazing to me. No, how actually, she was, actually, actually, she, actually, she was out of there when she was in the African Union. For okay, a brief well, period, she, yes, she seems to come back in just like someone who had a seat. <laughs> anyway, yes. the, the point is this also. I mean, this is the woman who ran against Cyril at Nazrek. She was one of the people who said that if he's re-elected and he wasn't ousted in just this last ANC's big conference, that she would get out and leave. Does she have so little else to do or so little self-respect or is she being pressured by other people that she couldn't stand up and say, you know what, I don't want your crappy ministry of women, children and people with disabilities. I'm out. Or does she have nothing else to go to? I have no idea. I'm not privy to what goes on within the uh, the Tlamini Zuma household these days. But I suspect <laughs> that from Cyril's point of view, it's better to have her in the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. <laughs> Which, no, What's no, that, Pumi? Pumi, Pumi, hang on. Repeat, say that again. What about Lindiwe? She was also there from all those many years ago, has moved from from position to position and now she's out no she must go to the ccma <laughs> <laughs> now, i mean the, the issue the issue here is simple all that he did was he basically handled his political opponents right by which i mean he kicked lindy versusulu out and he you know put ndz in the um uh in the in the union buildings where he can, you know, in the little crash area over there where he can keep an eye on it. Um, th that's, that's effectively what he did. Um, the rest is all meaningless reshuffling. Um, mm. What baffled me, um, he's had a report. You know, he said he was going to, they, they were working on a plan to reduce the size of the cabinet. Right? Mm. But first they're going to increase it. Yeah. Because that's, you know, that seems reasonable to me, you know. Genius. If I'm going to paint, if I'm going to paint a car red, I'm going to start by painting it blue. Yes. Um, he's had actually had a plan. This is not about them working on a plan. He's had a plan on his desk for four years, saying this is how we reduce the cabinet to 22 ministers, I believe it was. Uh, um, now we're now we're back at City, which gives South Africa one of the, if not the biggest cabinet in the world. Um, this is absolutely his job for pals. It's it's um, it's all about his own loyalties, and and you know his own position within the party, um, yeah. consolidating his power base. Uh, none of this had anything to do with the people of South Africa, you know, and and right from the start when he when he turned up late, you know, and 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 kept postponing it and so on. Mm -hmm. um, this is the same president that in 2018 said starting on time for us in the ANC is a big thing because Nelson Mandela told us that if you don't start on time, then you're not respecting your audience. You know, he Correct. said there would be an end, an end to African time. He completely disrespects the people of South Africa. This is not about the people of South Africa. This is not about the needs of the country. This is purely about the needs of Cyril Ramaphosa and the ANC. Um, I that's I that's, that's all he did. Know. I just want you to know on the issue of African time that true Africans know that you wait for the train because the train's not going to wait for you. They're always on time. No, exactly. 
<laughs> I mean, not, look, I think... Wait, I think wait, whole, what, what, are we talking about trains in, in South Africa now? Can, can Pumi, what trains are we talking about? I'm Africans. About? I'm talking about Africans and waiting because nobody waits for you. And this, yeah. this notion that African time is you're going to be late and because everybody's going to wait for you. I but, think this might be a notion of African uh, I mean, the, politicians. This may seem like a, a, a silly thing, and I'm glad that you, you reminded us that Nelson Mandela was the one who said you don't keep your audience waiting, but it is, it's actually the rudest thing in the whole world. And you remember during those family meetings we had over COVID, he was oh, also he the late, he was all late the time. for almost all of them. And yeah. I just think you can't get your shit together. Like a national address is a big deal that most presidents only get to do a few times in their lives where they know people will be listening. They know people have to pay attention. And those first family meetings were so, so important because they were his opportunity not only to get everybody to rally behind him. Now we look back on them and it looks ridiculous because all those stupid things they made us do were completely pointless, completely. Did everything except help people remain healthy or keep the country's economy going or keep people employed. In fact, it was... It made things worse. Right. But at the time, we were like, got to watch Cyril tonight. Got to make sure we know what's going on. He also had the opportunity in those family meetings because he was in completely honest one-to-one communication with every citizen to have fired half of the people who were a problem to him. He could have got rid of them. And look at what happens, by the way, when someone leaves the ANC's fold, when they leave the comfortable world of cabinet or of the NEC, they disappear. You can't, you can't find anyone to report on three words that Ace Magashule is saying right now. Can you? Yeah, uh, it's cold. It's cold outside the ANC. Um, <laughs> you know, that's always been a, that's always been a phrase and it's, it's absolutely true. Uh, leaving the ANC, if you've got a comfortable position within it, uh, leaving is a really, really brave or stupid thing to do. Probably both. All right. Well, are you at least excited about our Minister of in- Electricity? I mean, no. surely this no. is a good thing. Come on, Ivo. Don't be so negative. No, I'm not excited about him at all. Um, <laughs> you know, he used to be mayor of Pretoria, mayor of Tshwane. Yeah. And um, he, look, he's got, a, he's got a civil engineering degree. Uh, he apparently specialized in transport uh, engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got a few degrees on top of that in terms of, uh, I don't know, politics and business and so on that, that take him up to a PhD. So he's got some qualifications, um, which is, I suppose is a good thing. But the closest that I could find that he was ever involved with electricity was a very dodgy smart meter contract in China, which people from that area might remember where he bought, I don't know, several hundred thousand smart meters um, for somewhere north of a billion rand, uh, failed to install most of them, uh, so that the ones that did get installed eventually cost about 160,000 rand each per unit. Um, they didn't work very well. They didn't tell people their consumption, for example. They weren't really as smart as advertised. Uh, the whole deal got cancelled, um, before the contract was signed, uh, no, no, Pravin Gordon actually warned him against doing that deal. So, all I, his only experience with electricity is a dodgy tender. I mean, this is ESCOM's problem, dodgy tenders. How is he going to fix that? You know, how, He's got no experience in fixing that. Um, I have absolutely no faith in, in this whole idea that 
he's going to sort things out and he's going to oh and by the way he's going to slap gordon and um Gwenim and tasha into line Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that so they now agree. So they now agree on things, and William and Tashi doesn't stop uh, undermining everything. And and yeah. and uh, you know he's going to now suddenly approve all the renewable energy stuff that he failed to approve because he's in the pockets of coal. Yeah. All of this is going to supposedly magically happen. Um, I don't buy it. I'm sorry. I really don't. Uh, well, I mean, you've written this this pretty blistering attack on uh, Cyril Ramaphosa. Uh, are, are we are we so fed up with him that that you could pretty much say anything you want right now? It's not even going to get a reaction out of people because I sort of I kind of get the feeling that Pumi was on this train a very very long time ago, and that maybe Ivo, uh, your your article will find a very warm audience, but that it's not news to anybody. This is your article oh, called. Our feckless president and his bloated self-serving cabinet, which people can go and read. Isn't feckless such a lovely word? It's a great word. It's a great word. I stole stole it. Someone used it. Someone used it earlier in the day. Saunderson May is fond of using it. Yes, Um, I I, I love it. I love it too. So I had to. I had to steal it and use it. If you want to read his articles on the Daily Friend, and you can find his bloated self-serving cabinet there as well. So I have a. Another, another thing, just just while we're on the, just just while we're on the topic of the new of the new cabinet, mm-hmm. um, there's a guy called uh, oh now I, I forget his name. This is criminal of me, a writer. Um, anyway, he tweeted and he said, uh, "Spare a thought for for uh, Judge Raymond Zonda, right, who had to swear in Zizi Kodra." whom not too long ago he recommended for criminal prosecution. (laughs) This is, you know, this is a sign of intent on the part of Sloran Poza. He says he's going to deal with corruption. But no, does he deal with corruption? Does he recommend CZ Cordova for criminal prosecution? No, he gives him a cozy cabinet job. And it's, it's, it's not news to anyone. You know, it's, uh, it shouldn't be, at least, you know, and, and the people who were optimistic about Ramaphosa at the start, I never was. Um, I, I was pessimistic about him right from the start. But uh, I don't think anybody will be surprised anymore that um, this is all about him. This is all about not acting against corruption. And thank hey you. It's business, it's, it's well, business can, I, can I throw a hint of optimism into this thing and tell you why I'm very excited about this cabinet reshuffle? Okay, go. We've been waiting for this all week. (laughs) All right. Basically, the reason why, in my book, Cyril ended up delaying implementing a cabinet uh, reshuffle is that he was trying his damnedest to not allow Paul Mashatile to become deputy president of the country. Mm -hmm. Now, if you consider the chain of events that's actually happened over the past several weeks, firstly, remember that uh, Didi Mabuza... uh, basically forced uh, Ramaphosa to acknowledge that he needed to be doing a cabinet reshuffle by using the occasion of a funeral to announce that he would be stepping down as deputy Mm. president of the country. At which point Ramaphosa said, no, please don't step down um, until I do my cabinet reshuffle. And so Ramaphosa then sat back and then didn't do anything. And so Didi Mabusa forced his hand very effectively by resigning as an MP. Because you can't be a deputy president of the country unless right. you happen to be an MP. 
So that effectively forced a situation where Cyril needed to do a cabinet reshuffle. And I'm reasonably sure that all of the delays that happened were not uh, because of rudeness, but he was trying his damnedest to work out a way at the last minute of preventing Paul Mashatile from becoming deputy president of the country. And now that Paul Mashatile is deputy president of the country, this actually sets up a scenario where, given that Cyril effectively bought his way to the presidency, remember, he doesn't have a constituency. He doesn't mm -hmm. have a voting base. Mm -hmm. Cyril is there because he was able to take money and he was able to buy votes. But now that those votes have been bought, is he right for recall? I think the answer to that is yes. And I strongly suspect that right now the long knives are being sharpened and this is going to set us up for the uh, uh, ability of the ANC to now recall Cyril Ramaphosa. And I think that that's a good thing because frankly, if I had to choose between Mashatile and, uh, and Ramaphosa, I would choose Mashatile. Look, make no bones about it. Uh, the, <clears throat> I'm not saying that Mashatile is going to be a less corrupt representative of the, uh, the ANC than Cyril Ramaphosa is. What I'm saying is that at least during the time that Mashatile served as MEC for finance in Gauteng, which was when uh, Bazima Shiloa was uh, premier, this province actually worked reasonably well. That was the time at which we got the, uh, the cow train in place. That was the time at which we had that massive rollout of solar geysers to the east bank of Alex, which if you drive along the N3, you can see to this day. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I don't care if uh, Mashatile runs the Alex Mafia. That's fine. <laughs> I would rather <laughs> have the Alex Mafia in, in place running the country, but Thanks. actually actually doing a basic level of service delivery. So now, 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 let's, now let's talk about Sputla. Um, okay. yeah. I just want to point out before you move on to Sputla, if that's true, yes. this is even more damning of Cyril that he at the last minute still was not able to come together, bring a plan. Like he's just politically incompetent, if nothing else. I mean, how could he not foresee that there would be some kind of a challenge to him? And if he did foresee it, sitting on his hands for like, what, two weeks while Didi Mabuza manipulates him. Didi Mabuza, who's no rocket scientist himself. And Paul Mashatile has outmaneuvered him too. This shows you how absolutely effete and, as Ivo said, feckless our president is. Now, on Indeed. to Sputla. Well, well now, now, from my perspective, okay, Sputla is, uh, is Mashatile's man. Any disagreements from anyone around here? I'm, I'm very clear that that, that uh, uh, Sputla is is very much part of uh, of Team uh, Mashatile, and and again, I think that this is something that um, uh, Cyril basically didn't want to have to deal with. But you know, given the way in which the votes actually stacked up, this is something that Cyril was uh, was forced to deal with, and and Sputla ends up being the the person that gets drafted there. But remember, at the same time, the fact that you now have <clears throat> this um, creation of a position effectively within the presidency, this doesn't mean that he has the ability to override uh, Gwede uh, or Praveen because the ministry in the presidency does not control the departments that actually firstly control the electricity supply and, uh, um, and distribution or the procurement of energy generally but also doesn't really have a budget to be able to implement any sort of rollout.
unless there's suddenly a situation where massive amounts of money are pushed into the 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 presidency in order for him to actually uh, try and roll out all of these solar plants so that the larger Ramaphosa family and here we're talking about Jeff Khadebe and uh, um, Patrice and yeah. Patrice Motsepe and and all of them who are in the um, uh, our first uh, family. Our first family, thank you. Yes, that's, that's, that's the phrase I, I was looking for. But so that they can do their rollout of, uh, as independent power producers. The, the, uh, the, the, so, Rockefellers, the Rockefellers and Vanderbilts of South Africa. Yeah. <laughs> but, but guys, right now, what I'm trying to say is that look behind the lines. Uh, okay. The ANC is currently, it's tearing itself apart. Mm hmm. Okay, there's, um, and the, the big battles in the ANC have yet to come. Um, we're going to see over, over the next year a desperate uh, scramble to try and find some way to buy votes. So, you know, so one of the disastrous things that's coming along um, next year have been the changes to the pension fund laws. Uh, I don't know how many of you have been following this. Uh, Ivo, you probably um, have some indication of this. But effectively, what they're going to do is to change the pension fund laws so that um, uh, you're able to draw out money from your pension before retirement time. You know, mm -hmm. which is so it, it, it's uh, on the one hand, it's going to keep the, the masses, particularly in terms of public service workers, very happy because they are suddenly going to be able to dip into their pension funds and spend all this money on God knows what. It's but it's a disaster for the country because in the long term, it means that those are going to be people without pensions and the country is going to have to find some way to support them. But this is going to come into effect in the next tax year with the elections. And it, it's very clear to me it's a vote buying scheme. So you're going to see a lot of scrambles along these lines, a lot of uh, uh, last minute uh, feeding at the trough in order to uh, to effectively buy votes next year. But an ANC that's tearing itself apart, guys, is a good thing. I'm, uh, I, okay. I, I think it's a good thing. All right. For me? Remember that I said to you guys after, not Polokan, after Nasrak, that uh, Paul Mashatin is the biggest winner. And that what we're swiftly heading towards is a Paul Mashatile president of the ANC. And you can also see that Paul is playing a long game. And you see it in a way that... Um, the local, uh, the local municipality games are playing out. Why is the EFF pulling out? It's very strategic and very, for a long time, particularly in KZN, working coalition with the IFP because they're positioning themselves, you know. So uh, Julius Malema is positioning himself for a presidency of uh, Paul Mashadile and himself, as deputy president, hopefully in a coalition. And because they're all reading the signs, right? They're all looking at the polls that we're all looking at, the polls that are saying in the next general election, the ANC is going to dip below 50%. They're going to need a coalition partner. In looking at the way the EFF is playing out in the coalitions in Johannesburg, in Ekuruleni, and making a very concerted effort of becoming friendly with the ANC in Gauteng, speaking of Paul Mashatile's men, which is also the current premier of, uh, <clears throat> sorry, the current premier of uh, Gauteng, ANC uh, Banyaza Lusufi, 
also a Paul Mashadile comrade, Paul Mashadile peer, and Spudla, definitely a Paul Mashadile peer, and all of these individuals and all of the, the way that they are positioning themselves, the long game is 2024 and what they hope to pull out in 2024. And I think one of the things that we are also, I mean, for me, the cabinet reshuffle is neither here nor there. They've got 12 months, maybe 15 months at most wow. before All there right. is. You say the cabinet reshuffle is neither here nor there, but I, we've got a poll up and I think people want to vote in this. My favorite new minister is A, <laughs> Sputla of Electricity, B, NDZ for Ladies, Kids and Cripples, See, I'm all for more ministers. Those are for the people. Obviously, we've created that category, especially for those people who think our cabinet is too small. And then finally, I'm not impressed at all for the cynics. Ooh. So you can go and, hmm, go and vote now, Paul. Tell us who your favorite new minister is or what your opinion is and go and vote now. We want to know your thoughts. We will announce the results at the end of the show. So, Ivo, can I quickly come to you because you've specifically highlighted something which I think we talk very little about in this country. We actually have another chamber of parliament. There is a whole other chamber that we pay for. And it's been confusing for a lot of us, especially those of us who once studied constitutional law. This is effectively meant to be like our Senate, but they don't really have any power. It's a house to put traditional leaders in so that they feel listened to. You know, there's a lot of lip service that gets paid here. Um, it's a national council of provinces where supposedly the provincial legislature is represented by these people in some sort of national structure. How exactly it works befuddles and confuses even people who are in the national council of provinces. What do they do? How do they do it? Why is it dominated by the ANC? And why might the ANC still control it even if they lose their majority in the national assembly? Well, they do as little as possible, which is, um, I think, what you could say for any uh, sort of government structure or government body. Um, mm -hmm. it, most of us notice this when, uh, you know, when there's a SONA, the State of the Nation Address, and it's a, it's a joint sitting of Parliament, and the, you know, commentators, uh, you know, helpfully tell us that this is um, a joint sitting between the National Assembly and the National Council of Provinces. And, mm -hmm. you know, we, Get the, the welcome the, the the speaker of the par, uh, speaker of parliament, and we welcome the chair of the national council of provinces, and everybody goes, oh yeah, yeah, that exists, that exists. Doesn't really seem to do anything, but it exists. What it does is um, on any legislation that affects the provinces, uh, it has to um, consider the legislation. It can recommend. Uh, in fact, it can demand. Uh, changes to the legislation. It can then either accept the legislation or it can throw the legislation back to the National Assembly. Um, uh, so it can block legislation that is passed by the National Assembly. If mm. the National Assembly wishes to override such a block, they have to do so by a two-thirds majority, which is an extremely high hurdle. So, you know, now you think, okay, well, what, what affects the provinces? Um, that's actually a fairly long list. Um, they can't, for example, affect the, the, the president, the presidency. You know, the president is elected by the National Assembly, mm -hmm. and that's purely a National Assembly matter. They can't affect the budget, the national budget, because, again, that's a, a parliament matter and not a, a provincial matter. But they can affect anything that involves uh, education, 
primary and secondary education, uh, agriculture, consumer protection, disaster management, environmental matters, health services, housing, uh, indigenous and customary law, uh, industrial promotion, police to a limited extent, uh, population development, public transport, tourism, trade, urban and rural development and welfare services. And this is only half of the list of subjects on which the National Council of Provinces is empowered to veto or amend legislation. Right. So they actually have an enormous amount of power. Um, they've been acting as a rubber stamp, obviously, you know. I mean, if the cabinet is ANC-controlled and the parliament is ANC-dominated and the NCOP is ANC-dominated, they're all just going to say, yeah, 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 yes, boss, yes, boss, this is what we're going to do. Um, what happens when the ANC loses its majority in parliament? And let's assume that it does not get to lead a governing coalition, which I actually think is unlikely come 2024. But... Um, uh, you know, let's say a DA-led coalition um, takes over government, takes over parliament. The NCOP is constructed out of 90 members, 10 of which come from each province. So every province has an equal delegation uh, going mm -hmm. to the National Council of Provinces. Uh, that delegation is comprised uh, proportionally, depending on how many, depending on the, the party representation in the provincial legislatures. Now, at the moment, uh, the ANC controls a, an outright majority of seven provinces. Right? Right. It has a, a five-member uh, delegation in the Gauteng delegation. So five out of ten of Gauteng's votes are ANC. And the only one where it has a minority is in the Western Cape, um, where it has only three members in the, uh, in the provincial delegation. Now, most of the votes in the NCOP happen per province, not per individual member. Right? So the fact that the ANC dominates seven provinces and has an equal share in Gauteng gives it uh, probably well, a minimum of 78% of the vote in the NCOP. Um, it is much more dominant there than it is in, uh, in Parliament. Now, there's some polling that the IRR has done, uh, the Institute for Race Relations. Um, and, you know, f frankly, I don't think any of the polling that's being done in South Africa is very reliable um, for a number of reasons. And it's not that the bolsters are particularly bad. It's just the nature of the nature of polling and, the, you know, what mm -hmm. people are going to say when you ask them certain questions. Um, but it does suggest that there's a possibility that a number of the provinces could switch. Um, come 2024, uh, just right. like it says that the, the country would probably switch, the ANC would go to 42% or something. Um, now, that actually really needs to happen, because it's, it's, but it's a big move. It's a big change to get the ANC from, um, what is it, about 65% uh, of the members and 78% of the votes in the NCOP to below 50%. Right. Um, if they don't do that, then the ANC is going to play spoiler. You know, on anything that affects the provinces, the ANC is going to be able to veto um, Parliament, and then and then force Parliament to adopt things with a thirty thirty uh, with a two thirds majority, which of course any new government coalition will never achieve. So, um, it, it, it it's a massive thing, and uh, I've. I've been surprised that political analysts and so on haven't really been talking much about it. I think the only one I saw in the last year that spoke about it was um, 
an article by uh, Pierre de Fosse. Can I just, am I unmuted here? You know, one of the things that we we often talk about also with you, Canton, here on the show is the business of politicking, which almost all our MPs are terrible at. And what you alluded to, Ivo, is the fact that going into the next um, five-year term after the 2024 uh, election is going to need astute politicians. You know, I've been watching, I watch a lot of the by-election numbers as well. Personally, I think the the EFF have made a miscalculation by pulling out of their uh, <clears throat> by pulling out of their coalition agreement with the IFP because there's a lot of uh, by-elections that we're seeing in the KZN area, and almost all of them have the IFP trending up. So the the likelihood that even in the 2024 election, the IFP's numbers are going to swing back quite drastically away from the ANC. Uh, is also about, and you're talking about the switching just in, in that National Council of Provinces, the poli- the business of politicking, the business of walking the floor and getting and whipping the votes, which is what Pemma Jodina should be doing for the ANC, which mm-hmm. I, I don't believe that the DA is particularly good at, right, in kind of canvassing people across the floor from them to come onto their side when it comes to passing through legislation and pushing bills through. They're not particularly good at that. And that's also one of the reasons why when we look at the coalition uh, structures in the municipalities of the eight metros where there were coalitions, you know, the, there are only three DA members left. There was one in the, there was one in Twani, there was one in Johannesburg, there was one in Cape Town, one in Nelson Mandela Bay, there are only three left. There are only three left standing, right? Because they're not particularly good at whipping votes, at talking to their colleagues and moving them across the floor to their side for the greater good of everybody. And this is one of the reasons why I think coalition governments, a coalition government in South Africa is going to struggle terribly. And it is also the reason why I'm sorry, Musi Maimane, the idea of changing the game and having individuals stand for the position of president will never work, you know, because the most important thing is being able to get the people around the table to the same place. And none of our guys are good at doing that. Agreed. I think, I think there's a lot of discussion about that, though, about how the coalitions might work. And then, you know, and, and I agree with you. You know, I think it's going to be absolute chaos. Um, I think it's going to be a very traumatic time, uh, even under the best of scenarios, you know, which and, and I I think the best scenario is a DA-led coalition, um, despite all its flaws. Um, but I, I think I think the coali- national coalition government will be will be terrible. You know, I think a lot of the small parties will have the power to basically bring down the president at any time they choose. Um which, which you know, there's going to be no stability um, in, in government for a long time to come if that happens. Um, but I think that's separate. But from, Ivo, you know, that's, Ivo, the one, Ivo, that's the one issue that's being discussed. Ivo, and what's, Ivo, what's not at, discussed look is at the, the plus NCOP. side. Canton mm-hmm. is our silver lining man this morning. Yeah, on the on the plus side, Ivo, if if it's going to be total chaos, they're not going to be able to pass a budget and steal money. I agree. And I that's agree. Fantastic. I agree. I'm an old school libertarian. And I believe uh, not in an efficient government. I believe in uh, an, an inefficient government. The less government is able to do, 
the less they are able to infringe on our rights to do things for ourselves. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, we, we <laughs> seem to be, to be coming full circle on this stuff because I can remember a conversation with the four of us, actually, not so long ago on whether or not uh, electricity was going to be the, the final tripwire. But I, uh, ironically, the wire has been stolen by cable thieves. Um, guys, let's move on to some international stuff because there's quite a lot to talk about in the international sphere. I don't know if you've seen, but there's been quite a lot of noise about January the 6th which we were told in America was the insurrection. You know, there were congressional hearings held, there were investigations done, some people are languishing in prison as we speak because they were unable to, you know, to, to, to make a difference, to do their thing, to actually effect change um, the way that they wanted to. Now, suddenly, there's a whole lot of footage turning up, which Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the House, has given to uh, Fox News, which is making it, patently evident to anyone who has eyes that this is less insurrection and more kind of guided tour slash bunch of droogs who walked into a government building and got very little done other than, I don't know, stealing Nancy Pelosi's lectern. Um, this was never going to overturn democracy. Why was it so hyperinflated by the Democrats at the time? Do you want me to every... go at that? You can. <laughs> right. I mean, no, no go for it. Right, I, I, I threw a line into the water and no one's, no one's biting. I, well, I, I've, I do, I've spoken on this I many consider, times, so I'd rather hear Ivo on it here. Yeah. I, I, do, I do consider it an insurrection, and I think minimizing it is, is a mistake. Um, there was a significant amount of violence and... Uh, you know, some, some uh, and, and, and the whole thing was unauthorized. You know, you don't waltz into um, into Congress and, and, and physically try to block um, Congress from, from effectively rubber stamping the results of an election. Uh, that is insurrection. Um, the, the footage that Tucker Carlson got, uh, it, is, it is interesting in the sense that this gives this QAnon shaman dude um, some very interesting footage to show in court to argue that he may not have been aware that what he was doing was trespassing and so on. Um, mm -hmm. the, but the, the reality is that those police officers that escorted him in um, and led him all the way to the Congress, uh, to, the, to the doors of, of, of the, the Congress chambers, um, they were all fired for misconduct. Right, so they they weren't doing what they weren't right in what they were doing. Um, they were wrong, and they were and they were disciplined over it. Um, yep. Frankly, I think that there should be similar criminal charges levied against them um, for allowing people unauthorized access to Congress and allowing people to go threaten uh, Congress critters. Um, you know, so I'm not sure that what Tucker Carlson has is quite as powerful as he makes it out to be. Um, it, it is useful to the QAnon shaman in his court case, certainly. I think it will, it will certainly lead to mitigation of sentence in his case. Uh, but I don't think it, it fundamentally changes what that day was all about, and that it was not sightseeing. This was not just people wandering around Congress just you know, as if they were allowed to be there. They weren't. Um, they were there to be disruptive. Some of them were violent. Um, you know, it, it really was an attack on, on the seat of U.S. government. Um, 
You know, the whole notion that you can just stop a Congress from, from certifying an election, I think that in itself is a seditious notion. All right. Uh, that's very different opinion to Canton's from just a couple of days ago when we spoke about this stuff. So, all right. Uh, you, no, you no, no, say- no, 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 no. Look, certainly in terms of the uh, – remember the, the key issue in terms of June 6. By the way, I, I agree with the broad brushstrokes of what Ava was just talking about because, you know, should anyone be allowed to charge the Houses of Parliament? It's kind of like the EFF trying to – charge the stage when um, Ramaphosa is delivering his sona. It's, it's certainly not a peaceful protest. And, it's, uh, um, and you know, I, I think that that kind of stuff has no place in a democracy any more than uh, the. But you see, the question of June 6th is not whether um, the stuff that they did was peaceful protest or not. It's a, the heart of it is whether it was instigated by Donald J. Trump. That right. is the heart of it. And ultimately, this is not about trying to go after the people who actually caused the cuck on June 6th, because they did cause cuck on June mm-hmm. 6th. This is about trying to find a backdoor way of preventing Donald Trump from running in the next election. Simply. And, you know, every time we start focusing on what actually happened behind the scenes, the question really is, was this something that was directed by Donald Trump or was it not? You see, in other words, was there culpability on the part of Donald Trump? And that, for me, is the key issue. I don't believe there was culpability on the part of Trump in this. In fact, all of the sound bites that we've seen, the tweets that we saw uh, from Trump said, you know, uh, uh, peaceful stuff only, um, uh, no violence and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, I, but I, I think we're, yeah. get, we're getting too yeah. we're getting too I, caught up I right now. A, I think that's a bit. I, I think that's a bit naive and a bit, a bit disingenuous. Um, you know, I mean, of, of course, you know, even Trump isn't isn't stupid enough to call for violence on Twitter. You know, but when he said, and I, I don't have the quotes in front of me, but the way the way he told people to come to the capital and to and to fight this. Um, that implicitly is an invitation for unspecified trouble. Um, you know, he might have he might have plausible deniability uh, in a court of law, but um, I, I think his intent was pretty clear. Well, wait, wait, uh, Ivo, are you suggesting that we should bypass rule of law and that we should in fact prosecute well, based uh, on interpretation well, let's, well, let's, of intent? We'll, we'll, let a, we'll let a court decide whether it actually constitutes incitement to violence, whether it actually constitutes yes. incitement to insurrection, um, or, or not court, but a Congress, uh, because the president, and I think a former president, can only be tried in Congress, isn't it true? I, a former president can only be tried in Congress. I don't believe that that is, in fact, the case, because you can't no, be charged. A president can only tried be tried in, no, a certain hmm. A sitting, a sitting president, president can be, can be tried by, Congress. by Congress, yes, yes. Okay, so he'll, but, he'll but, end up, but, he'll end up facing former, the Supreme Court, but, no doubt. Yeah, but a, well, but a former well, Joe president... Biden. No. Joe Biden is the sitting president. He's sitting because he can't stand up for too long. And uh, I, don't think, I don't think he has to try, has to try for. He doesn't have to be tried, but the only thing he has to try for is to pee without it burning. <laughs> look, guys, you know, the interesting thing that's going on right now, if, if, if you look at the discussion that took place between Ted Cruz and Merrick Garland um, over the past uh, uh, days. That was and interesting. It was very interesting because Cruz was basically saying to Merrick Garland, the reason why you went after the, the question of the documents at, at Mar-a-Lago was you were trying to build a case. Uh, 
uh, and it was a political case, and that's the reason why doc, uh, um, uh, information was leaked mm-hmm. from uh, within your department in terms of uh, what was going to be happening. But no such leaks happened in the case of uh, uh, of Joe Biden. And, you know, is there, in fact, uh, a, a politically motivated series of leaks? And Garland's uh, plausible deniability response again, Ivo, is... Uh, well, you know, uh, I condemn all leaks and I'm not responsible for them. And that's okay. Uh, because have you been watching, uh, plausible deniability is, uh, is the cornerstone uh, of, uh, of politics. I, mean, I sometimes wish that, that people paid attention like Pumi does to our judicial appointments because, you know, when the JSC comes together, you've got all these people from the various parties and they all talk to judges. And I remember there was a fair amount of interest last year when we were choosing our chief justice. Um, and... I wish that we paid as much attention as America do. They obviously broadcast on C-SPAN the, um, the, the, the judi- judicial appointments that Congress has to make to judges all over the country for circuit courts and, and appeal courts and so on. And there have been some amazing, amazing exchanges between people who are standing for positions in the judiciary and them being grilled by the members of Congress. It, it kind of... It makes me think that even though America's system is full of massive holes and there are big problems there, that there are certain things that are still happening. Like you see these people being questioned. You see them having to stand and give answers for things that they've said and done before. And I love seeing that accountability, even if it is just for show, because we don't know, you know, sometimes the party just votes someone in anyway. But it's nice to see that stuff. And I kind of miss it here. You know, this comes back to the, the the question right now in terms of who actually controls the Senate. And it's a very different scenario going back to as recently as the Obama era, where mm-hmm. there actually was behind the scenes discussion that would take place across both sides of the political divide. There would be negotiations and you know, uh, and, and effectively it was up until that stage, a reasonably functional system in terms of how these appointments uh, were uh, were affected. So the first time it went toes up was um, at the point at which uh, Obama was not allowed to put forward a nominee for uh, for the Supreme Court. In fact, it was the, the very same Mary, Mary Garland. And, yeah, and, and in hindsight, seeing the way Garland has conducted himself o- over the, uh, the, uh, the past... Um, uh, uh, period, the guy's a turd royale. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, having said that, uh, it, it was fundamentally wrong for a Republican-controlled Senate to not allow uh, a nominee to be put forward for the, uh, for the position of Supreme Court Justice. That was the yeah. point, to my mind, at which the, the U.S. system actually fell apart. It's, it's now a, a pale shadow of its former self. I, I think that the ability to have those discussions that actually allow for compromise on bills before they get put forward um, result in the divisive politics that you've got right now. The, I, I the tend to is, agree. Yeah, the Roe versus Wade thing is a good example, you know, just yeah. to, to kind of uh, crystallize this. You had a situation where you had Democratic president, Democratic House, Democratic Senate, and they could have codified Roe versus Wade before mm. it actually ended up... Um, <clears throat> being, you know, summarily ejected by the, the Supreme Court. Why did they not do it? Well, it's because they were very clear that this was a wedge issue in terms of the coming elections. 
And yeah. it was better to have it there as a divisive wedge rather than actually trying to keep the country working. So, Gareth, you know, I think that, yes, it, it's kind of like our constitution. It's, it's great, but it was designed with Mandela in mind. Oh. And, <laughs> you know, you should design things with your worst yeah. enemy actually with, implementing the, the laws. Can, I, will, can, you were, you were, yeah. I just want to say, Kenton, one of the things that, you know, you allude to is interesting because we were talking about that with the NCOP is the fact that what they are also able to do effectively in the in the state is they're able to 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 whip the votes you know they're able to go and talk to each individual and get them on site or not for whatever the, they're trying to push through on both sides right and no, Pumi, I'm, I'm saying that's no longer the case I'm, uh, yeah that's so you and i are in agreement that one of the things that has happened you know similar to we said is the the blocks of voting and people are, are now you know and interestingly i wanted to bring this up what we saw happening on monday in the council or rather in action essay in swane with them mm. wanting to put their councillors to lie detectors so that yes. they can figure out who did not vote block vote with them you know for the mayor and those are the things that break the way the system is supposed to work and down the line you know it's got consequences down the line as well Ivo, you wanted to say something yeah i just generally i agree with you canton um I, I don't think the U.S. system is working as well as intended. One of the things that bothers me, for example, was the, was the, the questioning of um, judges. If they don't ask judges about their judicial philosophy or their position on the Constitution or, you know, things that to me would seem relevant. It's all about um, hot-button political issues, you know. Where do you stand on transsexuals? Where do you stand on dinosaurs living at the same time as people? Um, you know, should we be, you know, should we teach our children evolution um, or is that going to turn them into Satanists? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's all of these crappy, bloody partisan batshit issues that they get that they get tested on, um, you know, and abortion. It shouldn't matter what a judge's opinion about abortion is. Uh, what should matter is is how well their decision would be based, would be grounded in law. And that goes back to their history in terms of how they've applied the law in the past and their philosophy of how they would apply the law, you know, um, um, do they believe in state etc. It's been a, I, I just a don't long think, time. I just don't think it's, I just don't think it's serious anymore. Yeah, I think that's probably true for a lot in politics. There's so much this performative now. Um, so, Ivo couple of things, because we haven't had you on for a while. People thought that we had, uh, we'd had some kind of disagreement with you and that we hadn't invited you, but I promised there was no such thing. But you're here <laughs> now, and, and you want, one of the other things you want to address is the move against objectivity in journalism. Now, this is particular to your area of interest, but I think a lot of us will be pulled into this because we're sick to death of seeing media publications being used for political narratives and agendas, and we're not sure who to believe anymore, and it's an ongoing discussion since the world of fake news opened up so long ago let's let's hear your thoughts on this and let's hear why we should all be worried about it well you know I've, there was a, a washington post article written by a guy called leonard downey um mm. and he's a former executive editor of the post 
and a professor at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Arizona State University. So he is himself a fairly senior figure. But it wasn't just an opinion article. He actually went out and interviewed uh, 75 or so people um, mm -hmm. in the media, at all levels of the media, uh, to discover the values and practices in mainstream newsrooms today. And he said that what we found has convinced that the truth-seeking news media must move beyond whatever objectivity once meant to produce what he calls more trustworthy views. And, and he talks about a generational shift in American journalism. And basically, they argue that, that uh, young journalists think that they got it all wrong, that objectivity is really um, a, a way of, of dressing up um, you know, the stale status quo opinions of, of an establishment, that establishment being, you know, probably majority older, white, male, um, etc. Um, and, and that it, it ignores a lot of um, alternative viewpoints and alternative lived experiences. Now that, of course, the whole thing comes out of the, the woke movement, the, the critical theory movement that uh, elevates subjective experiences, lived experiences, um, above, you know, annoying things like objective facts. Um, mm -hmm. and, and this is, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure you've had a lot to, to say about critical theory in the past. Um, and and to, me, to, to me, this is a real problem, though. I mean, I, I agree that a lot of viewpoints have been excluded in the media and, and don't get enough coverage. And I, I absolutely welcome... Um, reading more about those views and reading more from those writers. You know, I think it's important that we do get a very wide variety of views. But to say that you want to throw out objectivity, I think, throws the baby out of the bathwater. Now, look, I'm an opinion writer, right? So maybe it's a bit ironic for, for me to be all up in arms about this. Um, mm -hmm. You know, because, because I write what I write my subjective opinion on things. But my subjective opinion must be grounded in fact. You know, I rely heavily on, on news reporters that give me both sides of the story, you know, that, that give me what I believe to be an objective take on what actually happened. You know, I wasn't always there. I wasn't there to interview the people. I ex expect right. news reporters to give me an objective report on that. So I know what's going on. You know, when I take a position, um, I want to know that I've heard all sides of the story and that when I dismiss an opinion, I've done so only once I've understood the opinion that I dismiss and I've Correct. understood the people that the people whose opinion I dismiss. It sounds, it sounds um, like a lot to, of work me, for many journalists these days, though. That sounds like far too much work. I, I think for a lot of journalists, it probably is too much work, but you know, I'm a bit old school that way. I suppose I, I, I like, I like to be able to point to, you know, research and, 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 this, this research consists of scientific papers and so on, but it also consists of, of actual news reporting. What do we think of this? I mean, Pumi, uh, Canton, what do, you, what do you say to what Ivo's just brought up here from that article? Look, my, my personal track record, remember, I went back to ENCA with a view to getting the audience figures back up to above 50% of market share because they had fallen to uh, below 30% of market share. And I was given a year to do it, and I did it in three months. And how do I do it? It's very simple. Um, you, you push 
relentlessly the concept of accuracy, objectivity, and fairness, and you strip out the adjectives. And it really is as simple as that, because people will actually be able to tell when you are trying to get them to swallow a particular line. But it also got you fired. Well, you know, <laughs> it also got me a year's <laughs> paid holiday. So, guys, so let's not forget that. Uh, but <laughs> In the I middle thought, of I thought, COVID. Was, I thought it was interesting that um, the, the, the author of the article, Downey, he... Uh, He's, at one point in that article, he said he never understood quite what objectivity meant. Um, mm. You know, and he didn't consider it a standard for the newsroom. He said, my goals for our journalism were instead accuracy, fairness, nonpartisanship, accountability, and the pursuit of truth. Well, fine. If you don't know what objectivity means, then I can, I can go with those, um, you know, the, 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 those criteria. Accuracy, fairness, uh, partnership partisanship, etc. So the power just went off here, so my UPS just complained. Get, uh, okay, so it was um, your UPS. I what the beeping was. Pools, you, know, I, you get I, to have say. The minute you make I, a cut... I, I, can, I can live with the that. Minute, but the thing is, what he's describing there is objectivity. I, 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 or at I least wanna, yeah. striving for objectivity. I mean, yeah. Pumi, go ahead. The minute you make a cut, the minute you make a decision that this is what we put on, because news or uh, reporting is not a data dump. You have to have a point of view, and that point of view is informed by all sorts of things, right? So the minute you make a cut, the minute you decide this part of what this person is saying instead of that part or the whole of what this person is saying, it that makes it... And is it is it less accurate, the fact that you've left out half the sentence? Is it less accurate? It's making a decision. I don't know no, if no, that decision but I agree makes with me. That's, I, I agree. Pumi, that speaks to that speaks oh. to fairness. And and, and I just want to say, and and the question of fairness for me is at the point at which you choose to omit particular facts in order to skew the story makes it patently unfair. And and that's no, really but, an objective test. If you are leaving it out because it's irrelevant, that's one thing. If you're mm -hmm. leaving it out because you're trying to push an agenda, it's different. And, you know, yeah. when, I, when I teach journalists this stuff to this day, I, it, it, my line is very simple. Um, uh, accuracy, get the facts right. Objectivity, don't take sides. Fairness, don't bring stuff into the conversation that's meant to skew the story in a particular direction. The stuff is not rocket science. No. And and it no, actually look, works. But but just one last I, thing, I accept, guys. I, I accept <laughs> that. Sorry, I, I accept that. In, no individual journalists can can be expected to reach pure ob objectivity. You know, it doesn't exist. Um, but if one journalist leaves out a certain section, um, that actually twists the meaning of what happened uh, or twists the truth. Then another journalist I, won't. You know, and and if I, I then I've read three or four reports, I'll get a good picture. Uh, Honourable members, on a point of order, I know you've got more to get off your chest. Canton, last, last word, and then I've got to give the poll results because we've got I, to know I, who you have. My, my last word is I want to send a shout-out to Helen Ziller. It's her birthday today. Happy birthday, Helen. Oh. I want to send a shout-out to Duncan McLeod. Um, it's also his uh, birthday. Yes. Tech Central, it's also his birthday. Happy birthday. I believe, I believe he's well. turning 50 today. He is turning 50 today indeed, yeah. So um, can't believe you, you wasted our time with other people's birthdays. With balloons on the timeline. <laughs> <laughs> all right. What's so, the poll uh, results? Here are the results, uh, ladies and gentlemen. You've been waiting all morning. The final poll is our favorite new minister of uh, Cyril's cabinet is 
A, the Minister of Electricity, Sputler, only 9% of the vote went to Sputler. Uh, 4% <laughs> right at the bottom of the pile to Nkwasasana Tlamini Zuma for ladies, kids, and cripples. Uh, I'm in for all, for more ministers than that, people who wanted an even bigger cabinet, 6%. And that means 81%, I'm afraid, not impressed at all with Cyril's new cabinet. Oh, no. Poor Cyril, back to the drawing board. Thanks, everybody. That is the burning platform for today. We will see you next week. Same time, same place. Thank you, Ivo. Thank you, Canton. Thank you, Pumi. And most especially, thank you to you. Cheers, everybody. Have a very good Thursday. Bye-bye.